Hi folks, welcome to the Doppler Podcast, your source for news, views, and opinions from the ever-changing world of cloud computing. Our mission is simple, to help you navigate your career journey with the best advice, tips, and techniques from those who found success in a cloud-first world. This podcast is brought to you by Cloud Technology Partners, NHP company. My name is Brad Loomis, and fortunate enough today, I have two acquaintances. Actually, I call them now friends. Uh, we met each other uh, at a panel event at Google in New York in the May time frame, and uh, had a lot of uh, fun, but also had a lot of great conversations and different perspectives, perceptions of what's going out there. Uh, so much so, we'd figure we would invite you fine folks into the listening of that with us today. So uh, we'll get right at it. Uh, I'll introduce uh, both of my guests. Uh, Stuart Stent, why don't you go first? Uh, who you are, what you do, and uh, what's the daily life like? Yeah, so uh, as you said, I'm Stuart Stent. I work for Cloud Technology Partners, um, part of the professional services organization here. I look after projects that are up and running out in the world, make sure that uh, the clients are happy and that our teams on the ground are happy, and also part of our security guild, so coming up with best practices and, and evangelizing cloud security. Ah, thanks, man. And then also joining us today is... Uh Great resource and just all around good guy, Jeff Mitchell from uh, HashiCorp. Jeff, why don't you intro yourself and uh, tell us what you're up to on a daily basis these days? Sure. So uh, I work at HashiCorp on uh, on Vault and other security things we have going on. For those that don't know, HashiCorp is uh, we produce a bunch of products that are uh, cloud agnostic and sort of cloud first to help people sort of move their workloads onto the cloud. Um, Vault is a security product, so. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of steeped in that day-to-day. I'm a principal engineer there, so I basically look towards the future of of Vault and, and kind of the industry and try to make sure that we are anticipating what our customers need and uh, and that we're building towards that. Oh, awesome, man. And hey, thanks for joining us today. We should have some fun. So, Stuart, let's, uh, let's set the table. Uh, you and I have talked a bit, and uh, even with Jeff when we were down in New York, and uh, in obsession is our friend Sean from New York Times. But we had some good conversations around some facepalm moments out there, uh, some security best practices. And it's been a little bit since we've gotten back together. What sort of uh, trends you're seeing out there in regards to uh, what folks should be doing uh, to ensure at least a proper hygiene to start? Yeah, so it's it's always an interesting interesting thing to look at how people are approaching their migration or getting into the cloud world. And we see all sorts of foibles and, and things that, or avenues that people go down that are not maybe the best idea. Probably the biggest ones I see not going native enough uh, when they go to cloud. They try and redo a lot of stuff that are, um, is more an on-premise mindset rather than leveraging the cloud services that are available. And the, probably the second biggest one would be not uh, not taking advantage of the automation enough. There's some great tools out there. Jeff is uh, one of the uh, the guys that can help you with that, especially on these uh, the secrets management side. But things like uh, Terraform or even any of the other tools are out there, whether it's Ansible or whatever, leveraging those and, and really getting some good automation in place is going to make everything so much easier. If you're, if you're still doing things via the the AWS console or the Azure console, um, that's probably not going to scale all that well in the long term. Yeah, I agree with you out there. And Jeff, uh, from your point of view, are you seeing uh, anything additional or pretty much uh, straight in line with what uh, Stuart's seeing out there on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I echo everything that he said. I think that that's really good analysis. Um, 
one of the things that that I see people uh, stumbling over is is basically resources. So the cloud is this unlimited resource that isn't actually unlimited, and because I, I think there's a psychological component where you are you're looking at it and saying, okay, if I have a physical data center and I have a machine, then all of that machine is now available to me for all time. And maybe I'm paying a little bit for you know a network drop, but that's a per month charge, a per month electricity charge. Whereas on the cloud, it's like a you know per minute or per hour or per request charge. Um, and I think that causes people to look at it and say, okay, so I have a bill and I see this many requests. How can I get that that number of requests down? Um, or how can I you know how can I make sure that I'm paying less than I think I should be paying for you know, a given service. And so uh, I see a lot of people undersizing. Um, and the way that this ends up playing out is, uh, is you know, you get workloads that would take, you know, 18 uh, or it would take, say, like 40 minutes um, uh, on, on like an on-prem sort of scenario, a lot of data migration, things like that. And then you go to the cloud and it takes 18 hours. And this is a, a real thing that we've seen because people run out of IOPS, right? The, the, you know, the resources are not actually unlimited. They're actually something that your... Um, you know, that, that's given to you by AWS or GCP or Azure or Oracle. And so you really have to not just assume you can move workloads on there. You really have to size appropriately and you have to understand not just sort of raw compute power, but your IOPS as well. Yeah, I agree in that regards. I think uh, folks uh, typically will under underestimate what I call the squelch factor, right? And if you take a look historically at some of the uh, bursting capability, you may be given uh, the allotment of IOPS or access at any given point. Uh, but over time, that uh, tends to drift down. And then if you couple that with some of the benchmarking that goes on, you can actually see uh, drift as well between what uh, what you think you might be paying and what you're actually getting behind the scenes. Uh, Stuart, from your point of view, have you seen some of that sort of, uh, let's say, undersizing plus uh, just uh, naivety? around uh, some of the initial footsteps uh, folks have been making? Yeah, certainly. It's it's quite uh, quite common to see people run into, like the old school one was, oh, I'm, I'm hitting the limits on KMS. Uh, there's only so many requests you can do per second um, to that system, and you just need to understand those limitations and, and what that looks like. Um, or picking the wrong instance sizes, instance types, not not provisioning the right sort of disk on the back end, assuming that provisioned IOPS is the way you should go. Maybe it should be GP2, maybe it should be cold storage, who knows. But it's a, it's a matter of really educating your teams and your um, your architects as to what those things are and giving them the right tools to, to make those decisions properly. Yeah, and I agree. So I'm going to throw a, let's say, a disruptor, provocative, I'll use that term, provocative uh, concept, right? Because I think all of us have heard it. Well, let's just get out of the game altogether. Let's go microservices, serverless. Uh, that will solve everything for us. So uh, back to some of the conversations we all shared at, uh, in New York together. Uh, what were you seeing as some of the challenges in adopting that sort of mindset above and beyond what we've uh, just covered? And Stuart, I'll pass it over to you. For sure, um, yeah, I would say much in uh, much the same sort of sort of issues. Really, it also outside of the pure resource constraints and understanding the the services you're calling with your serverless code, because right? you're not doing all of your process in that in that space. Um, understanding things like how the cold restarts work, how long your process is going to run, etc. Um, how how fast the calls are going to be to your uh, stateful storage. And then outside of the, the pure performance characteristics, understanding properly the security considerations you need to have in place there. What, what identity and access management roles 
are appropriate for that workload that you're running. I agree. And then, Jeff, uh, in that spirit, uh, you, you brought up a great point, man, uh, in regards to the, the cost of going down some of those design patterns. Uh, could you care to expound on what uh, adopting that sort of thought process has done, potentially, uh, in the way you folks have looked at it at HashiCorp, even for some of your own uh, tool sets and capabilities? That'd be great. Sure. Yeah. So, um I mean, as far as microservices go, I'm actually, you know, I'm a pretty big fan. Uh, if you look at things like, um, you know, Lambda, for instance, and uh, and Cloud Functions, like these are really cool things because you can get really nice utilization out of out of computing resources, and so things can be dramatically cheaper, right? If if you are, you know, paying for like, uh, you know, some kind of a VM VM instance or even a, a container instance, and you're not utilizing all of that capacity, you are basically paying for uh, for compute. Uh, resources that you aren't using. So I think that this is a really cool thing. And I think that it, it's um, a really nice technology, but it makes security way more costly. And the reason is, you know, when you start when you start something like a VM, then you'll likely get some kind of security token. So if you're using Vault, then you'll get a Vault token and you'll authenticate once, and then you can keep reusing that for whatever needs you have. If you're starting up, um, you know, 5,000 jobs instead uh, over the course of, you know, a couple of hours, every one of those 5,000 jobs comes in with a clean slate and has to re-authenticate. So you're putting a lot more load on the security software. You're putting a lot more load on um, on, on kind of redoing the same thing over and over just in terms of getting access to your, your, your secret. And this especially becomes complicated because the the security primitives that are offered by um, clouds, you know, you can get IAM, for instance, for uh, Lambda, right? But uh, what you find the more that you kind of delve into some of the stuff is that the clouds don't really like rotating things very often. They don't really like um, giving you a lot of kind of variability on the security primitives. And the reason for that is that it's costly. It's a relatively costly thing to do to sign to sign um, data. And, and then to verify it is often cheaper, although if you look at kind of away from RSA, which the industry is moving away from, and more towards like ECDSA, it actually becomes quite costly to verify as well. And so, you know, microservices, like I think that they're great for computing workloads, but most workloads these days need access to secrets and they make the secret management aspect uh, quite a lot trickier. And we've had to, uh, you know, in Vault, we've had to be very focused on sort of how do we how do we deal with that and how do we um, figure out, you know, ways to to try to mitigate the impact of having lots and lots and lots of tiny jobs as opposed to, you know, uh, larger jobs that reuse the same same kind of access credentials over and over. And what were some of the steps that you guys took, at least from a architecture design pattern, to be, uh, rethink that sort of uh, problem space? Now, was it so? Yeah, so we actually we took our cue from um, kind of the shift towards serverless in the first, or kind of serverless and, and microservices in the first place, which is being increasingly stateless. And so uh, we came up in, in our case instead of having stateful. Uh, tokens, we came up with a new kind of token that could be used for this kind of functionality where you know that you have a job that has kind of a fixed or limited lifetime. And uh, you can get a vault token to authenticate you that is ephemeral. So that token doesn't require state to be tracked within vault itself, but it has a fixed lifetime. It's not something you can sort of extend by saying, hey, I'm still using this, please renew it. Uh, That token is gone when it's gone. But the nice thing is that uh, because we don't have to track lifetime, that lifetime never changes, then we can always, um, then we just sort of take it as it is and sort of validate it every time that you give it to us without having to go to storage. Um, so we, we kind of took that that model that people are going to with their, their data flows, we looked at it and said, okay, can we apply that same model to security? Makes sense. And then Stuart, from your point of view, as these design patterns have been changing from a security optics, what are some of the new gaps folks should be looking at in a different light 
out there today, right? They may have tried to approach this with our uh, traditional approach of VM slash container-based, but in this brave new world, uh, is there uh, some words of wisdom you could expound upon for uh, the folks actually going down this journey, but also keeping security front and center in their mind? Yeah, for sure. Um, the the big one is going to be to to leverage the the tools and capabilities that the CSP provides, um, whether that's CloudTrail or the the native services on Azure or uh, uh, GCP. It doesn't really matter. But uh, leveraging those to the full extent and getting as much information out as you can, um, and also trying to gain some visibility with tools like PureSec or any of the other tools that are out there um, to try and get a little bit more information about what's actually happening in your processes as they're going on in that, that serverless world. I know, it, ma- it makes sense, right? It's uh, new problems, new tools, but as the saying always goes, right, a fool with a tool is still a fool if they don't know how to use it the right way, right? So moving on from that, uh, Jeff, from your point of view, microservices, serverless, what other trends are you seeing out there where you're seeing Vault being deployed against that may be new and exciting and maybe uh, uh, something coming over the horizon folks should start looking at? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about some of the trends that I see from the cloud, which which I think are good and, and kind of people using the cloud and then about Vault specifically. But um, one of the trends that I see people getting more comfortable with is kind of the idea of the cloud is the trusted third party. And so we see the rise of like identity of trying to understand, you know, what is this service? What is this machine? And, you know, I think that there's been a lot of hesitancy from people over the idea of like, okay, I should trust the cloud that I'm running on. You know, if they say I'm a particular person, maybe somebody has compromised, uh, you know, my cloud account through the console or something, or maybe someone has managed to make some kind of changes in, in, in my configuration. Um, but when it comes down to it, that's no different from sort of your homegrown systems. And the security for for the actual systems for most of these cloud vendors is really just top notch. I mean, it, it's, it's really fancy stuff. Uh, I've heard Seth Vargo at Google at GCP uh, talk about the ways in which they use like lasers and vibration sensors or crazy things like that to detect, you know, ingress into their um, into their data centers and their systems. It's really cool stuff. So, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, it, it's using the clouds as sort of trusted third parties and as sources of identity to uh, to kind of be used as authentication is actually a pretty good idea. And we're seeing people get more comfortable with that. Um, that's now kind of the number one way that people tend to uh, authenticate to Vault is, is they use their cloud provider's metadata as opposed to you know laying, layering some other type of authentication um, on top and kind of treating it as sort of more of an on-prem kind of scenario. So we see that a lot. Um, Another thing that I think is really positive development is people are getting away, and I think that this was mostly one that came from kind of the on-prem world, but getting away from this idea of there being a trusted and untrusted zone in the network. Um, you know, that that's an idea whose time is long past. Um, you sort of have to go throughout your your architecture and your planning, assuming that someone is in your network and, and that you need to have protections from machine to machine and service to service uh, additionally. So things like TLS everywhere, you know, having um, TLS for all of your traffic flows, regardless of whether you think it's public or private, that's that's something that's a trend that we're seeing, which is really positive. And in a, in a kind of similar vein, uh, encrypting everything, you know, not just the network traffic, but the, you know, data at rest. And I won't go into all the reasons why. I think there have been plenty of data breaches that sort of talk about why this is really important. I uh, know it's been uh, forefront, and I appreciate appreciate that point of view. And Stuart, some of the chats you and I have had in the past, probably a uh, plus one on that. What What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, for sure. The that whole concept of assuming you're already breached or that you're going to be breached in the next couple of days is is a really useful um, mental model for making good architectural decisions in the first place. Whether it drives you down the route of TLS everywhere or encrypting everything, um, it makes a, a lot of sense as far as a making those decisions in the first place, but also communicating them to to other teams so that they get a better handle on the why of uh, those decisions. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So I'm going to actually pivot the conversation a little bit uh, because, uh, again, getting to know both of you and as I consider your friends, uh, none of us were, were born with this sort of innate capability. And as these technologies change quick and fast and uh, we're always needing to be continuously learning. So, Jeff, I'll start with you. How do you keep current? How do you stay afloat with everything going out there? And uh, any uh, tips, tricks, techniques? you would ask pass on to folks to become uh more aware in the space sure um so i think in 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 a general kind of not security specific uh sense i think the thing that i find most valuable is sort of um the ability to skim and you know not just what you're reading but kind of information generally you know i i sort of subscribed at some point in the past i realized you know i can't remember everything and uh and i sort of started subscribing to the philosophy of I just need to know what I don't know, or I need to know what's out there, and then I can Google the rest. And so, uh, you know, one thing I find really valuable is is kind of consuming a fire hose only in the sense of becoming aware that a project is out there or a concept is out there, so that when I see a situation where I think it might be applicable, I can say, you know what, I don't know the details, but now I'm going to go look up those details because I remember that this thing literally exists. And that's been a really, um, I think that's been a good strategy for me, and it's made me kind of able to adapt to a lot of things that have uh, come through. Um, one other thing I'll say is on, on security space, and I think this is valuable for anyone that's dealing with security at all, and so this is sysadmins and um, you know application developers and so on, is you don't need to be a, a cryptographer. Um, you don't need to write your own cryptography. In fact, please don't. Um, just get an understanding of applied security, right? And so this kind of comes down to that similar concept of like, you know, figuring out just the things that, that you don't know and filing it away. It's like, you don't need to know that you need to use SHA-3 versus SHA-2-256. What you need to know is not to use MD5. Right. You don't need to know that uh, that you you know that you shouldn't use, or you don't need to know the details of like particular all, all the different symmetric key encryption al- algorithms that are out there. You know, you just need to know ASGCM is a good choice, and and it's because it does authentication as well, or like Cha Cha and Cha Cha Poly. You know, so kind of getting getting an idea of like the basic tenets and just applying them well and making sure that you you use them right from the libraries that are you know well designed. That gets you a really long way. Uh, that's, and that's, uh, I agree with you at uh, plus one and then some. Stuart, from your point of view, uh, I know you lead a lot of our efforts internally and uh, run run the guild with us. And uh, how do you stay current? And what's your philosophy and approach to uh, swimming in this uh, great world of ocean, uh, great ocean of knowledge that we're seeing out there these days? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I, I hands down agree with the uh, drinking from the fire hose thing. I I looked at my uh, RSS feeds the other day, and I think I do probably between 400 and 500 articles every day, just skimming through at least the the titles of them all. Uh, I might dig into maybe one article as I that comes across my desk that looks interesting. But in general, because I have to cover 
um, at least three major clouds plus on-prem plus whatever else comes my way every day. The big thing for me has been focusing on first principles and understanding uh, new concepts as they come down the pipeline. Um, I don't need to know the the internal workings of how Vault works or how Terraform works or um, how EC2 does its, its magic on the back end. But if I can understand the first principles of how those instances run, what they come up, what does cloud in it do, um, at least from a high level, I can apply that to all of those clouds and then some. And that makes sense, right? Uh, enough to get to a hello world moment, as we've covered a couple times on this pod- podcast, but also know where to scratch the surface and go deeper uh, as that client engagement or as that problem set comes up. Let's put on the crystal ball, guys. We touch clients every single day. Uh, all of us see a lot of new technology out there. Uh, Jeff, I'll go to you. What, what do you think is coming around the next bend for us? What do you see that's going on out there? And again, it can be outside the realm of cloud that has you excited of uh, the next piece of shiny to start looking at. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the ones we, we already sort of touched on already, which is um, which is uh, uh, kind of microservices and, and, and functions, cloud functions especially. Um, and we, we touched on that before in terms of some of the challenges that arise from using those. But I, I do think that that's going to continue to gain traction. Um, you know, it, it, it just it makes a lot of sense from kind of a, a resource usage and financial perspective to um, to, to make use of those. So. Uh, I, I think that's one way that we're going to be, um, you know, or one kind of change and, and, and trend that we're going to see continue. Um, another part of it is, you know, GDPR. We're starting to see some of the, you know, I don't think we've seen a lot of enforcement actions yet with GDPR, but I think it's only a matter of time. Um, and it's really put a lot of kind of more advanced sort of security, what's going to be put this? <laughs> um, kind of more advanced security topics on on the radar for a lot of people. Um, things like uh, multi-person authorization, you know, having multiple people have to sign off on, on an operation in order for that operation to occur. Um, that's something that's called control groups in GDPR. Um, and, and there's a lot of like, there are a lot of things that are specified. And I think that a lot of companies really haven't wrapped their heads around it yet. So I think that as uh, as people wrap their heads around GDPR, um, given how kind of global all these companies are, I think that we're going to see uh, better security practices actually move towards the, the state side as well and kind of move globally because they'll say, look, it's not worth having very different security and access patterns um, in Europe versus other places. We're just going to implement the same thing, have better security anyways. It's a better story for our auditors. It's a better story for our users. And uh, and we'll see kind of um, uh, just more and more adoption of, of kind of better security. As they say, all uh, boats rise in the tide. And I agree with you on that. Stuart, from your point of view, get the crystal ball out. What, what do you see in my friend? Yeah, I think it's an, an interesting time at the moment. We seem to be in sort of a more of an evolved mindset than we are in a, a new and innovative mindset. Like I'm not seeing uh, new mystical services coming up uh, every day. We're seeing people iterating on the things already out there. We're seeing better use of machine learning and AI tools, um, some new interesting uses for, for blockchain out there. Um, I think all of those sorts of services are going to be uh, a lot more prevalent in the next little while. Um, you're going to see a lot of uh, a heck of a lot of machine learning and uh, an AI coupled with uh, human interaction at this point. Um, they're just we're just not quite at that cusp yet of, of everything being pure AI. But uh, I think that human machine mix is is a really good place to be at the moment. Yeah, no, and I uh, agree with you as well. So, guys, as we're coming into land, uh, Jeff, I'll go to you first. Uh, if folks want to reach out and connect with you online, what's the best way to get in touch with you or connect with you? 
Uh, sure, I, I am on Twitter, although I don't tweet much, um, at J-E-F-F-E-R-A-I. I'm also on LinkedIn under the same name. I don't put posts on LinkedIn very much either. Uh, I just, uh, it, it's it's one of those things. I just, uh, I enjoy reading what other people are, are, are writing and I just never end up kind of writing myself. So uh, you're, you're free to follow me, but uh, you know, it, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing in your estimation, you won't see all that many uh all the many posts. <laughs> well, I've always enjoyed our conversations in real life, my friend. You're always uh, a pleasure to talk to. Stuart, uh, from your point of view, uh, how can folks get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best way at the moment. Not a big content producer apart from the odd Doppler article, but uh, yeah, happy to field any questions or whatever that comes in through LinkedIn. Perfect, folks. So thanks so much, folks, for joining us today. And thanks so much for Jeff and Stuart. Glad to have you guys on and uh, talk some more. We'll have to definitely do this again. Folks, uh, please feel free to connect with me at the website, bradloomis.net, for all my socials. And with any questions, concerns, or comments, don't forget to go to www.cloudtp.com for your current cloud news, links to this podcast, and more ways to contact us directly. And for cloud news delivered to your inbox every Friday morning. Visit cloudtp.com forward slash Doppler to sign up for the weekly report. And as always, take care and make it a great day.